Hey, it's Craig. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Canadian History X early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everyone, Craig Baird here. Before I begin today's story, I want to take a moment and ask that you check me out on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. There are several tiers with great benefits, from ad-free content to t-shirts and other cool stuff. And if you're a fan of Canadian History X, make sure you check out my other shows, From John to Justin and Canada, A Yearly Journey. And don't forget, you can also donate directly to the show at www.canadaehx.com. It helps keep this show going. All right, on with the show. A listener's note. The following episode contains coarse language, adult themes, and content of a violent and disturbing nature, and may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. Things were pretty great if you were a sports fan in Edmonton in 1987. The Oilers were at the top of the standings in the NHL and on May 31st, the team captured its third Stanley Cup in four years. Wayne Gretzky, the captain, won four trophies that season and the doom of his departure to the Los Angeles Kings was still a year away. In the CFL, the Edmonton football team was on its way to winning the Grey Cup on November 29th over the Toronto Argonauts. But before that second shiny moment could happen, the city fell into a deep darkness. July 31, 1987 became known as Black Friday. That day, Edmonton changed forever with a single storm. I'm Craig Baird, and this is Canadian History X. Weather events have fascinated and terrified humans throughout our history. Hurricanes, floods, blizzards, and other unexplained natural phenomena were often justified as the will and the action of gods. As science offered explanation and clarity, our fascination continued. There's something about being powerless to the elements that makes us all cower. Yet nothing seems to capture our imagination quite like a tornado. From Dorothy being swept away by one, to the magical land of Oz, to 1996's Twister, nothing has quite enthralled us like windstorms. Each year in the United States, 800 to 1200 tornadoes touch down, primarily in Tornado Alley, that area that stretches from northern Texas to South Dakota, the most of any country in the world, four times more than all of Europe combined. But what country ranks second? That would be Canada. Alberta and Saskatchewan have the most within the country with 14 to 20 per year. The Blackfoot of the Canadian Southern Prairies call tornadoes windsucker. According to the oral stories, the windsucker lived in a cave and within his mouth were the many bodies of those he had killed. The earliest documented tornado struck Port Robinson in present-day Ontario in 1792. In Alberta, the earliest recorded tornado hit on August 14, 1907 near Vermilion about one hour east of Edmonton. From 1915 to 2020, 
167 tornadoes were recorded in Alberta, the majority being between 1980 and 2020. Now that doesn't mean there were more tornadoes, it just means there were more eyes on the sky reporting them. June 1st, August 15th sees the hottest temperatures in Alberta which can fuel immense thunderstorms across the province. The worst Canadian tornado, by death toll at least, occurred in Regina on June 30th, 1912. Known as the Regina Cyclone, it was an F4 twister that cut a five-block-wide swath through the city, killing 28 people, injuring 200 and leaving 2,500 homeless. About 500 buildings were destroyed. You can check out my episode on that in my feed. Coming in second is the tornado that struck Edmonton on a hot day in late July 1987. When the sun rose on July 31, 1987, and newspapers hit the newsstand, the front page of the Edmonton Journal featured an image of a daredevil riding on the wing of a biplane over Red Deer, Alberta. A story about a one-cent postage price increase and the move by Prime Minister Brian Mulroney to halt refugee ships filled most of the front page. The weather forecasted a high of 26 degrees, with some rain and possible thunderstorms. Throughout the week leading up to that day, a low-pressure system had been sitting over southwestern British Columbia. That fed a line of warm and humid air into central Alberta. All week, hot temperatures in Edmonton created near-record dew points. Now the dew point measures atmospheric moisture and shows the temperature at which air cools to condense and make clouds. The higher the dew point, the more moisture in the air, and that means stronger thunderstorms. Three days leading up to July 31st, over 300 millimeters of rain fell in the region, causing the water levels in the four major rivers around the city to rise as much as 8 meters. Tennis ball-sized hailstones fell on the western edge of the city during one storm, knocking two people unconscious in the process. Between July 25th and 30th, 14 tornadoes were reported across the province, ranging from F0 to F2. The scene was set for a perfect storm pun intended. On July 31st, a cold front developed in western Alberta and collided with the warm, moist air that had been lingering over the region. Weather forecasters predicted that the day could see an elevated risk of severe weather with potentially vicious thunderstorms. That would turn out to be an understatement. I've spent most of my life living in central Alberta. In fact, I grew up on a farm just outside of Edmonton, although I wasn't there on this fateful day. What I can tell you is that whenever we have thunderstorms, they develop at the foothills of the Rocky Mountains about 300 kilometers west of the city, and those storms slowly move towards Edmonton and central Alberta, gathering strength as the heat rises from the ground. And that is exactly what happened on July 31st. The first severe weather watch was issued for central Alberta in the morning, citing a potential for thunderstorms. A severe weather watch for Edmonton specifically was issued at 1.40 p.m. One hour later, it was upgraded to a severe weather warning. Now there can be some confusion between what is a watch and what is a warning. And the best way to explain it is actually by using tacos. When you have all the ingredients for a taco, you have a taco watch because there's the potential to make a taco. When those ingredients are made into a taco, you have a taco warning because now the taco is fully formed. It is the same with storms.
At 2.50 p.m., the first line of storms hit the Edmonton area, and one violent cell was rapidly developing ahead of it. Like a monster in the water looking for a victim, the storm turned northward, towards Alberta's capital city. To prepare for this episode, I asked my Twitter followers to share their experiences of Black Friday, and I received over 80 responses. I'll share some throughout this episode. Barbara LaRochelle said she looked at the sky and saw the clouds were a sickly green. She described the air as heavy and strange. In fact, most of the responses mentioned how odd the clouds looked and how they thought it was strange the sky was green, that you'd never seen it like that before. Meanwhile, at 2.52pm, the Weather Radio Canada emergency tone was activated and the Edmonton transmitter sent out a signal that severe weather was approaching. At 2.59pm, as this monster storm passed east of Leduc, 15 minutes south of Edmonton, the first tornado was reported. It briefly touched down before it dissipated. Local resident Tom Taylor heard clunking on his roof as the storm passed. He went outside to see what was happening and saw a funnel cloud moving over his house, heading towards the city. He said, quote, As I watched to the northeast towards Beaumont, the belly of the cloud slumped down and it spit out a huge funnel, much larger. It was dense. You couldn't see through it. End quote. Two minutes later, the tornado touched down again near Beaumont, 10 minutes south of Edmonton. It had grown in size and, and several granaries and farm equipment were tossed around like toys. The beast was moving closer to the city and getting stronger with every passing second. At 3.04 p.m., Edmonton was put under a tornado warning as a massive multi-vortex tornado touched down at the city limits. At the time, the southeast corner of Edmonton was known as Mill Woods. When the tornado hit that neighborhood, it was registering as an F2 or F3. Based on the Fujita scale for tornadoes, an F2 can cause considerable damage with wind speeds between 181 and 252 kilometers per hour. When upgraded to an F3, it can cause severe damage with winds between 254 to 331 kilometers per hour. The wind touched down and I rounded my family up and took them down the basement. Did you hear anything down in the basement? Oh, Christ. I heard everything down. We were scared silly. I mean, everything was coming off the house and then we heard a big bang coming off this next door, I guess, when the roof came off. I don't know, I don't know what we're going to do. After the tornado touched down in the neighborhood and moved on, firefighters rescued 20 people from collapsed buildings. A total of 32 homes were damaged and hail measured 10 centimeters in diameter. The tornado now turned its sights to the Sherwood Park Freeway. The freeway was jammed with traffic as people made their way home early to enjoy the summer long weekend. As the tornado crossed over it, it picked up several cars and tossed them. Dale Campbell barely escaped with his life. So I'm coming home to go home here in Mill Woods, and I got caught right in the tornado. Um, there was houses flying across 23rd Avenue, trucks flying across. Um, I got out of my truck to help people and got thrown 30 feet across into a field. And when I got up, um, there were people laying all over the place, so we picked up a couple of, of bodies, injured people with hardly any faces left, and put them in the back of my truck and, and took them out to the ambulances on, on the Shore Park Freeway. The fact that the freeway sinks into the ground under the monster storm's force likely saved many people. That's why you always go into a basement or ditch if a tornado is approaching. Your best chance of survival is to be out of the wind and out of the way of flying debris. As the tornado left the freeway in its wake, it moved towards Refinery Row, the industrial part of the city. 
By now, it was a monster F4 with wind speeds of 333 to 418 kilometers per hour. As it approached, it picked up rail cars and oil tanks and tossed them hundreds of feet in the air before they landed. Several industrial buildings were completely leveled and various trailers were thrown kilometers away. At Central Fabricators, a company specializing in oil field equipment and repair, a 10-minute tornado warning saved the workers at the site who fled into the steel-framed building for protection. At the Stelco steel mill, the overhead cranes were thrown around and the building itself was severely damaged. Fire's transport lost several buildings and dozens of trucks were destroyed, but employees were spared by taking cover in a sub-basement. Over at Lee Mason Tools, the three-sectioned reinforced concrete block building collapsed with the workers still inside. Thankfully, the large machinery tools in the building held the roof above the floor, saving the employees' lives. But others weren't so lucky in Refinery Row, and 12 people were killed. Well, we saw the tornado coming in from the south. Saw the power line shaking. We were watching from the shop and uh, from the doors of the shop. We heard a sound. It was just like a freight train. And uh, I had everybody move right to the center of the building. There's a concrete block portion in the center of it. And, uh, and we moved everybody into that area and into the center portion of the office and went right through. And I was sitting there and then all of a sudden I could see daylight. And the whole roof, just everything disappeared. Machine shop worker Glenn Petrick said that after the tornado passed, it looked like a giant spade shovel had dug up the industrial area and turned it upside down. Analysis looking at the grass scouring and windrow debris believed that the tornado may have briefly been an F5. An F5 is the most severe tornado with wind speeds over 420 kilometers per hour. At that point, Canada had never recorded an F5. And since 1987, there's only been one verified F5 tornado to hit Canada. It hit on June 22, 2007, near the rural community of Ellie, Manitoba, and because it was in a rural area, there were no casualties. Today, we use the enhanced Fujita scale, so that was the last F5 tornado to ever hit Canada. During Black Friday, the tornado weakened slightly as it passed over the North Saskatchewan River, but it still had the intensity of an F3 and the worst was yet to come. The beast was continuing to move through the city, and it hit the Clareview area at around 4 p.m., causing extensive damage to homes in the Kenoran, Bannerman, and Fraser neighborhoods. It damaged 463 homes, destroyed 37, and left 10 people injured. A man and two women had to be rescued out of a collapsed building. Well, I just went through it. I went, just went, I drove through the tornado, that's all, and it didn't flip my car. It just, I made it through, and then I seen people all over the place dead, and bodies and houses torn. This. Leanne, one of my Twitter followers, was visiting cousins in Clareview for a family get together when she saw the green sky. One of her cousins thought her uncle was throwing ice off the balcony, but quickly realized it was hail. As they ran into the basement, the tornado tore through the upstairs of the home. Another woman named Jody Zenko came home to find a boat had been thrown into the side of her house. And as the tornado continued its path to the northeast, it struck the evergreen mobile home park. And this is where the storm was the deadliest. Over 200 mobile homes were destroyed, dozens of people were injured, and 15 were killed. A one-week-old baby named Kristen was torn from her grandfather's arms by the winds. 
she miraculously survived and was found by a stranger. Meanwhile, Kristen's mother, Monique, was frantically looking for her daughter. Hours later, her friend, Marin, told her that she had seen a man walking of the destruction with a baby. Monique eventually found her daughter at the hospital where she remained for two weeks. I was unable to find out if Kristen's grandfather survived. With the worst of the destruction behind it, the storm moved out of Edmonton and began to dissipate. The tornado's path covered 37 kilometers and lasted for over an hour, 10 times longer than the average. It killed 27 people, injured 600, and adjusted to today's funds, it cost $400 million in damages. This included flooded streets and basements, ruptured gas lines, and fires across East Edmonton. And with so many injuries, hospitals were quickly overwhelmed. On Twitter, Mike told me that his mother was a nurse working on that day. Everyone was called in to help. His father was a truck driver, and without cell phones, his mother didn't know if her husband and children were okay. As she helped patients, she asked them what part of the city they came from so she could determine if the tornado had been anywhere near her family. Thankfully, everyone was okay. And that really is a miracle because this was a monster tornado that wasn't the only one to strike the Edmonton area that day. There were four F-Zero tornadoes with wind speeds of less than 135 kilometers per hour. That is on top of one F-1 and two F-2s, which caused minimal damage in the outlying areas. In total, there were seven tornadoes reported on Black Friday. Throughout the city, underpasses were flooded out and phone lines were down. Most residents couldn't reach their loved ones. So they turned to the radio for news as TV and power was off for most of the city. There was no social media and no way to get real-time information. So the lack of information was difficult for many residents. Kathy said on my Twitter that she had no power for three days. And without battery power, she couldn't even listen to the radio. For hours, she had no idea how badly the city was damaged, and her extended family couldn't reach her for over a day. Walton said he was 12 and was heading out of the city with his aunt and uncle as they watched the sky go dark out the back window. The reception on the radio cut out and they found an old transistor radio to listen to updates to the storm. Sandy said she was living in the Sherbrooke area of Edmonton and was left with no power. She had no idea what happened or that a tornado had even hit the other side of the city. It wasn't until 7 p.m. that night when Sandy's mother-in-law called from Prince Edward Island to check on the family that Sandy realized the size of the devastation. Justin told me that his dad was a milkman who delivered in the Clareview area. Thankfully, he was okay, but the family didn't know it on the day of the storm. Justin and his mother nervously sat in the car and listened to the radio. And as they sat there, baseball-sized hail fell around them. The Canadian Red Cross quickly mobilized and opened its phone lines to those who needed assistance and brought in 1,300 registered volunteers to help. They processed 11,000 inquiries within a day and quickly distributed food and beverages to displaced families and organized housing for 89 families. A victim assistance centre was set up on August 3rd for 842 families. The Canadian Armed Forces was also quickly mobilized. At nearby CFB Edmonton, the Department of National Defence put helicopters and ambulances into action to help with recovery and rescue efforts. And the disaster response lasted for three weeks. Following the tornado, an investigation was launched to determine issues with the warning and response systems. The report found that radio traffic was a major concern with many people on the radio all trying to communicate with each other. It also found that rescue operations were hampered and there was a need for a better system for registering injured and missing. 
It also recommended that all rescue personnel have emergency flashlights, possibly on the helmet, and that search crew should carry tape to avoid searching areas already searched. Then, after the dust settled from the storm, a new system was implemented that has likely saved the lives of many Canadians since. In response to the tornado disaster, the emergency public warning system was developed. This system breaks into private and public broadcasts on radio and television to alert of disaster hazards that may strike with little or no warning. Today, the system is the Alberta Emergency Alert and broadcasts directly to cell phones. It also issues amber alerts. The tornado also resulted in the first implementation of the Doppler weather radar concept in Canada. This system was developed in the early 1990s, and the Carvel radar, located just to the southwest of Edmonton, where I actually grew up, was one of three Dopplers to be implemented in Canada at the time. It provided real-time views of approaching storms with far more accuracy than satellite imagery. By 1998, the Canadian Weather Radar Network had been completely Dopplerized, creating a clear look at the weather patterns of the country. If you have a weather app on your phone and you can see a storm approaching, that is all thanks to the Doppler radar. The warning system and Doppler radar came in handy while working on this episode as an EF4 tornado, the strongest since the July 31, 1987 Edmonton tornado, hit near Didsbury, Alberta, north of Calgary. And while 12 homes were damaged and three were destroyed, thankfully, no one was killed and no one was seriously injured. I hope you enjoyed that episode and our look at the Edmonton Tornado of Black Friday. Next week, we're looking at the Great Stork Derby. Information from CBC, Global, Edmonton Journal, Reader's Digest, Canadian Red Cross, Wikipedia, Daily Hive, and the Royal Alberta Museum. This show is researched, produced, and written by me, Craig Baird, with the help of Dila Velasquez. Audio production and design by Rosalind Kufour. If this is your first time listening and you like what you heard, please take a moment and give us a five-star review to help other people find these amazing stories. And there are so many for you to sink your teeth into. If you enjoy this podcast, then please check out my other podcasts, From John to Justin, Canada, A Yearly Journey, Pucks and Cups, and Canada's Great War. We love hearing from you, so if you have a show topic you want me to cover, email me at craig at canadaehx.com. Or stop by my website and social media. I'll include all of those in my show notes. Until next time, I'm Craig Baird, and this is Canadian History X.